Today is an exciting day, and we are we're thrilled because, uh, as it was touched upon, six of our youth would be confirmed, um, and we'll share what that fully means. Um, so as we kind of just go right into this today's message, Palm Sunday is this day that still boggles our minds. Palm Sunday, it starts with Jesus walking to Jerusalem with almost 30,000 people. And they're waving palm branches because they're saying, he's the king, we're welcoming him. And then just four days later, the crowd would disperse and the crowds would shout a different phrase, crucify him. And so this week, it's a heavy week for all of us, not to be solemn for solemn's sake, but to really enter into this journey from the Jerusalem Palm Sunday entry to Good Friday and to Easter Resurrection. And this is why we do these programs at church, by the way. We kick off Palm Sunday. We have a Good Friday service. We have a sunrise service. It's a liturgy for you to enter into, to experience in a most tangible way, oh, this is who Christ is, and this is what it means to follow. But going back to this Palm Sunday journey, the complex and the simple answer of why would people turn from Hosanna, which means save us. Can you just shout Hosanna? Just humor me. It's to save us. They would go from Hosanna to crucify him. Why would they do that? The simple answer is, this was God's plan all along. Jesus was never meant to live a long life and retire. God's plan for him was to die on the cross for the sins of all people. So no good intentions or bad intentions can thwart God's plan. The complex answer is, I think, in my humble opinion, this is not from the Bible, this is just observation, people's expectations really set them up for failure. They have this expectation of God and Jesus to perform in a way that fits their lifestyle, and when he doesn't, we say, see, he's not real. And so I think that's a dilemma that's playing into this Palm Sunday narrative. So I want to kind of change the gear a little bit, and we'll go back to this question. But did you ever want something really bad at one point in your life? And as simple as this, when I was five, my parents went away to like a a worship at a church member's house, and my brother and sister were not there, so I had a babysitter. First time I had a babysitter by myself. When you're five, you don't know when they're going to come home. So you start feeling like every minute is long. Did Did this ever happen to you? Three, four hours later, they come back, and you start crying for no reason. You start crying and getting angry at them, like, where were you? And I remember that feeling where my mom and dad would walk in, and I would be so glad and so angry at the same time. Because that's for four hours, that's what I was obsessing with. Or maybe you went camping and food went bad. And did you ever go camping and food goes bad and there's no good food around? How does peanut butter and jelly sound when you're really hungry? I mean, you're like, peanut butter and jelly, it sounds like filet mignon when you're so hungry. And so when you want something so bad, that's all you think about. Everything is just heightened. And Israel, what they wanted so badly was, we want King David, his Messiah, to come. We want to win. We want these enemies to be gone. We want the temple built. We want to be the empire again. So in Mark chapter 11, Jesus plays on that. 
As they enter into Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, a baby donkey, a cute donkey that all of you. I heard some men going, oh, too. <laughs> Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found the colt, and then they brought it. And someone asked, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said. Now, when you look at that, you don't need to be a biblical scholar to say, Jesus wasn't looking for a ride because he was tired. There's an intention Jesus is doing. It's as if he's intentionally saying, I want people to have a flashing light. Remember Zechariah chapter 9? It's happening right now. It's as if Jesus could have walked in. He was never particular. He never said, hey, disciples, three in the front, uh, nine in the back. You know, he never had this particular detailed. But he's so particular about this. Go get the colt, untie it, and bring it. And he rides into it. Just picture a grown man riding a baby donkey down Beach Boulevard. <laughs> I'm going to go to Walmart. I'll be right back. It's just... So Jesus is walking in because Zechariah 9, I believe, was on his mind, but it was also on the mind of his disciples. Zechariah 9, it's a great chapter because in Israel's rebellion, they're trashed, their temple's going to be burned down, it's been burned down. And Zechariah 9 is God's promise. Verse 1 through 8 in Zechariah 9, God is saying, your enemies will be no more. Then we have verse 8, and it says this. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Now that's hard to read, but this is what it means. God is saying, I'm going to have my house rebuilt, and I'm going to live in it, and your enemies can never touch it. Do you know how big of a deal that is? For the Jews, the temple was burned. God is making a promise. The temple is returning. I'm going to be there, and it's going to be like never before. Obviously, it's not a physical temple. There's something happening here. So what was the sign of this promise coming true? Verse 9, it's in your bulletins on the top of your worship order. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. All right, what's the symbol? Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The sign of this victorious king was somebody's coming to town and they're riding on a donkey. You know, children at preschool or Sunday school or your children, they get excited during Christmas because who do they know is coming to town? Santa, you know, the jolly green, red man, you know. Fat belly and beard, and they're like, oh, it's Santa. That, that symbolism strikes something with them. You know, if I told you, hey, he's coming, he's got a red cape, and there's an S on his chest, who do we know that is? Superman. And what Jesus is saying here, and the Bible is saying is, the hero is coming, and here's the distinguishing mark. He's a king, and he's coming riding on a donkey. And Jesus, I love what it says. The king is going to be righteous, Bring salvation, he's humble and mounted on a donkey. Can I just say this to you? Just straightforward, if you're not a Christian or if you're a Christian or if you're a long-time Christian, the God and the king you've always been looking for 
And the reason why people leave the church and they say, I don't believe in a God because of this and this and this, he's evil, it's because we don't realize that the king we've been looking for is a salvation giver, a humble king, and someone who's righteous. In other words, the God that we worship is a kind God who is holy, but he's humble. I can't worship a God who is self-righteous and proud and hypocritical. There is this sense where Zechariah 9 is saying, this king is righteous, gives salvation, and is humble. This is Jesus, y'all. This is Jesus. So this entering to Jerusalem is more than just a symbol. The God king has come. So let's keep going. What does this mean? There's more underlying than just a donkey. In the Old Testament, if you, today in America, Southern California, if we say, hey, you got a donkey, you know, we don't understand what that means. But in the Old Testament, the donkey represented a clear message. The donkey represented this humility, this nobility, this regal, it, it, this gentleness and hardworking. So the donkey always matched a king who was this kind and noble. In the Old Testament, they had horses too. But the horses was complete opposite. In the Old Testament, the horse would represent war, pride, and human strength. So look at this verse. Psalm 27. Can we read it together? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What, what God is trying to distinguish is this. You can build an empire with your own might, and you could look strong, but true strength is not the one who has horses, but is humble enough to trust God and is willing to even ride a donkey. That's the direct contrast. That verse, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's make that into American 21st century. Some trust in their 401k, their salaries, their houses, their stock investments, and their possessions and their weapons of war, but we we trust, ultimately, not in these things, not in the government, but in the name of the Lord, our God. And I, I would love the Presbyterian church to say amen to that. That's what the contrast is. And so Jesus doesn't ride on a horse. He doesn't go, I'm going to win back Israel by this dominance. So here's a trick question, trivia question. Ready? I bet you were never asked this. In the Bible... How many times did Jesus ride any animal that we know of? Well, we know he rode a donkey today, so we got one. Any other time that Jesus rode an animal? This is so fascinating that I know of because when he's a baby, you know, Mary carried him on a donkey. But I'm talking about where he, as a grown man, rode on an animal. There is two times. You ready for this? First time is today's story where he rode a donkey. The second time is this from Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In John 1, 
the word of God is Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. He's coming, not this time, riding a donkey, but in the future. He's coming riding on a what? On a white horse. Sign of victory. Conquest. Game over. It's finished. Enemies are gone. This is the, so this is the contrast here. The first time Jesus came, he rode on a colt. He brought peace. Like I said to the children's message, Jesus came to bring peace between you and God. We all need peace between us and God because of sin. This is why we need forgiveness. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why those who are in him are washed new. This is why we baptize people. Second time Jesus is going to come, it's going to be on a white horse. And there's only one side that wins. It's on Jesus' side. The first time Jesus comes, he comes followed by a ragtag disciples. Can you imagine Jesus walking in? Twelve disciples. The king has arrived. Peter, <laughs> Judas, counting his money. I mean, can you just picture that? In Revelation 19, verse 14, what is Jesus followed by? And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. The first time Jesus came with a bunch of disciples. Second time Jesus comes riding on a horse. He's got a full army. One more. The first time Jesus came riding on a colt, and the mission was to pay the price and die on the cross. The second time, the enemy, the beast, and all of Satan's enemies, allies, are defeated. Revelation 19, 19, 20 basically says, all those who, who resisted God, all those would be burned. The rest were slain by the sword. The devil is here to destroy us. How good of it is that we have a God who is fighting the battle for us. And in Revelation 19, this rider on the white horse gives us a complete victory. So, Pastor Jason, that's nice. What does this mean for me? So I have three just short things as we wrap it up. Here's, here's the message of this triumphal entry. This triumphal entry of Jesus riding a donkey is a message for you and me and this world to say right now is the time that God has given us in his mercy to bring peace between us and God. That time ends when Jesus returns a second time riding on a different animal, the white horse. This window is a time for the church to go out into the world and to proclaim and bring people to Jesus Christ and to share with them the good news that Jesus, the God, doesn't come with a sword. He comes as a humble king who died on the cross for us. See, this is why we worship God. He doesn't force us, it scares us. He wins us over because of his kindness. Two, we got to see God's full story rather than our narrative. The people shouting Hosanna, what did they picture? You know this. Jesus, get off that donkey. You're the king. Let's get going. Let's bring up the armies. Let's get the soldiers, and let's go take down Rome. And when Jesus was arrested and crucified, they were like, see ya, don't want to be a failure. Was Jesus a failure, or was there expectation of failure. When we don't see God's story, but we project our story into God, we set ourselves up for failure. So when we have this 
idol-created God. I like my God who always makes me comfortable and peaceful. He's always kind to me. He'll never yell at me. And then you get disciplined. Or worse, I like this God. He protects my family. Nothing ever happens. My brother, my parents, my children are so safe. God, you're so good. You're a God who would never let anything happen. What happens when that cancer hits? What happens when that car accident hits? We set ourselves a failure and we say, God, see, he doesn't work. It's a failure. Why would I even bother with this? But God didn't come for that either. Jesus came to bring an eternal peace that our everlasting life would be secured by his grace, not this world. And so we could rejoice in suffering because the expectation is not convenience, the expectation is commitment to the very end of my life. I am yours. And lastly, I think we welcome Jesus in the same way that they welcome Jesus. We lay our palms down, but we don't have palm branches. Friends, what can you lay down? Instead of waving these palm branches, we could lay down, how about our pride? How about our self-righteousness? How about this desire to rule the world with a horse? and our strength. And so Jesus is pointing us, the way to victory is in me, not in your hands, not in your wisdom, not in your power. When a church meets for five hours to plan out the next greatest church in the world, I don't think that's the starting point. I think the starting point is for us gathered here to ride a humble creature and lay down our swords and to say, Jesus, Let me try your way, because my way has not been working. And I don't welcome you in under my terms, but I welcome you in full surrendered. King, rule and reign in my heart. Rule and reign in my family. Rule and reign in our church. And may your kingdom come, and yet your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.